Michael and I were talking about the farewell discourse as we were planning out this uh, portion of the Gospel of John, and he, he told me that uh, he trembled at the thought of preaching through the farewell discourse, and um, that was a bit of what I felt as I was preparing today's message, because there is so much in this passage, there's so much uh, content, so much truth, so much that we can chew on, um, but... Uh, I won't be able to do it all. Uh, I wish I had uh, multiple weeks in this passage, but um, we're going to focus on these four, 14 verses in John 14 um, today. Uh, look in your bulletin with me. We're going to read John chapter 14, verses 1 through 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house... Are many rooms, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am, where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else I believe on, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, what, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this, is, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This is the word of God. So as I began studying this passage, I thought my focus would be on the exclusive claims of Jesus here. Uh, Verse 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This is the idea that Jesus is the only way to salvation, the only way that we can reach God. And this is, if you've spoken to non-Christians, you may know that this is a huge point of contention among those who don't believe this, um, they, they say that because Christians claim to be right um, and others are wrong, because we believe this, we're arrogant, that this is offensive and this is scandalous to say that we know the way to God and others don't. And this is something that I hope that we as a church, as a people, we can talk about winsomely and intelligently, uh, that we can respond to people um, but as a pastor, it's, it's my job not just to look at what the text says, but also to discern what it is that we need to hear. What is it that God wants to communicate to us today? So as I studied more, um, I, I, I'm going to focus more on the, the, the larger aspect of this, of this uh, passage. Um, I could, we could talk about the apologetic aspect of of Jesus' claim that he's the only way. And um, I'm not going to talk about it too much. I'll talk about it uh, sh- in, in a short, 
short section of the sermon. Um, but if you have any questions about how, how can it be that Jesus is the only way to God, you can talk to either myself or Pastor Michael. You can talk to the youth because I, t- I taught their Sunday school class today and I talked to them about like, the exclusive claims of Christ. So they're around here somewhere. You can talk to them and they can uh, fill you in. Um, there's a lot of excellent resources on this topic, the exclusive claims of Christ. Um, but today in our time together, we're going to look at the context of Jesus' claim that he is the way, the truth, and the life. What is the context and what are the implications, the larger implications, if Jesus really is what he says he is? So uh, three points to help us understand what's going on in this passage. Number one, the unique comfort that Jesus gives. Number two, how Jesus is a unique Savior. And number three, how we're uniquely powered if Jesus is who he says he is. Um, And looking at the time, I might... uh, skim through the third point really quickly, just FYI, but our, our focus is going to be in the first two points. So to give us a little context before we go into our points, um, I want to give a little context into today's passage, which is part of the farewell discourse. These are Jesus' final words on the last night of his life to his disciples. Two weeks ago, Pastor Michael, he preached from John 13, and this is when Jesus said that he would soon be leaving the disciples. He says, I'm going to be leaving you. They don't know what he's talking about. He tells, he tells them, he tells Peter, Peter, you're, you're going to deny me. And then before that, he says, one of you guys is going to betray me. This is shocking. This is supposed to be the Passover feast. It's supposed to be celebratory. But this is not a good evening for the disciples. So the disciples hear this, that Jesus is going to leave them. And you can imagine how distraught they are. For three years, they've been living with each other. They've been led by Jesus, and they could not have ever imagined that things would end this way, that their leader would be leaving them. So Jesus, he, he knows the distress and the fear of his disciples, and today's passage, the words that Jesus speaks in today's passage, are spoken to comfort them and to gird them for what lies ahead. So Jesus speaks these words of comfort, and these words are not just for the men in that room that evening. These are words for us who are full of trouble, who are anxious. Is that us? Is there anyone in this room who's trying to make sense of their lives? Do any of us feel overwhelmed at what's happening today, or are we anxious and concerned about what will happen tomorrow If so, these words are for us. So let's look at them. Our first point, how this is a unique comfort. So Jesus, he's preparing his disciples for a life without him physically present. For three years, he's been leading them. They left everything. Remember Jesus, he called to the disciples. He said, follow me. And they said, I'm going to follow you. Which meant that they would have to abandon their previous lives. Jesus became the center of the world. And they didn't know it at this time, all these disciples. They didn't, they didn't know it at the time, but there was something about Jesus that compelled them to leave their old, their old lives and to follow him and to learn from him. And in these last hours of Jesus' life, he, he's telling them that these things are going to happen, that he will leave them, that the center of the world is going to be removed And even now, they don't grasp what's fully going on. Jesus is saying, my hour has arrived, and your life will never be the same. My hour has arrived, and your life will never be the same. 
So we begin, we begin our passage with these words. He says, Let not your hearts be troubled. And he says these because he knows they're going to enter troubling times. There's not only going to be uncertainty in the days ahead. Do you remember, if you remember the, the account of the resurrection, no one expected Jesus to rise from the dead. They were all cowering in fear in the days after the crucifixion. There was, so at this point, the night before Jesus' execution, they're, they're filled with uncertainty. Even after Jesus is raised from the dead, there will be inadequate resources for the church. There will be a lack of unity in the church. First Corinthians, as the church takes shape, there will be suffering. There's going to be persecution in the coming years. And Jesus knows he's speaking to his disciples, most of whom will end up being killed for following him. Some will be stoned to death. Some will be crucified. Some will be burned to death. This is what church history tells us. So Jesus, he knows that trouble is coming. And then he tells them, don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't let your hearts be troubled. I want us to look at the text And notice that he follows the first imperative with other imperatives. So the first imperative, the first command, he tells them, let not your hearts be troubled. That's imperative number one. Imperative number two, what follows immediately after that is, believe in God. Imperative number two. Imperative number three, believe also in me. Referring to himself, Jesus the Son. So first, Jesus, he acknowledges that their hearts will be troubled. The Greek word that, that's used for this word heart is cardia. And it's not just the physical heart. When Jesus, when the Bible refers to the cardia, the, the heart of a person, it's referring to the inner person. The inner person is what controls someone, how they think, what they do. And Jesus says, don't believe the things that will trouble, that will shake this inner person in you. And he has to say this because... They've put their confidence in something that cannot bear the weight of their trust and confidence. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Um, I don't know how many of you guys know who Post Malone is. If you're under 30, you know who Post Malone is. Uh, If you're older than that, like me, um, I know about this. uh, I'm going to refer to a song. I know about this song because I I heard it on American Idol. Uh, one of the one of the contestants sang this song, but there's a po- Post Malone song called "I Fall Apart," and here are some of the lyrics. The opening lyrics to the song, which has uh, I think like 200 million views on YouTube, so kids are listening to this. Post Malone, she told me that I'm not enough, and she left me with a broken heart. She fooled me twice, and it's all my fault. She cut too deep. Now she left me scarred. Now there's so many thoughts going through my brain, and now I'm taking these shots like it's Novocaine. Oh, I fall apart, down to my core. Here's Post Malone falling apart. And can I suggest to you that we are all like Post Malone. Post Malone has face tattoos. Um, We're not like that, I don't think. But we're all like Post Malone, minus the face tattoos, um, in some way. Because what is it that leaves Post Malone with a broken heart? What is it that cuts him deep and leaves him scarred? It's a person. Post Malone says that he takes shots like Novocaine, which is referring to him drinking as a way to numb the pain. What do we use to console ourselves? 
if we have experienced trouble, and I suspect many of us have, when things seem to fall apart in our lives, which I suspect it has happened for many of us, what do we turn to? So Jesus, he tells his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. When he tells them this, he's acknowledging that they've put their hearts in a position to be troubled. Post Malone put his confidence in a girl, and we put our confidence in, you can fill in the blank. It's different for all of us. But the point is that they believed in something other than God. They believed in something other than God. And this is why Jesus says, believe not what your heart is listening to, but believe in God. Put your confidence in God himself. So Jesus says, believe in God and believe also in me. These are the first two persons of the Trinity, the Father and the Son. Not because we have the option to believe in one and not the other. Not that we have the option to believe in God the Father and not Jesus the Son. But Jesus has these two imperatives in succession because God is made known and accessible by Jesus. So another way to read this verse is this. Don't let your inner person put its confidence in untrustworthy things, but put your confidence as I am making him known. Don't let your inner person put its confidence in untrustworthy things, but put your confidence in God as I am making him known. And as we continue on in the text, we'll see how Jesus elaborates on this, how Jesus makes himself, how Jesus makes God known. Because if we know what God is up to, if we know what God is like, if we truly believe that, then we're not going to fall apart when everything else is falling apart. So what comfort does Jesus leave his followers? Jesus doesn't say that things will get better in their lifetime. Jesus doesn't say that. In fact, later on in the farewell discourse, Jesus promises that they will experience even more trouble than what they've already experienced. This is one of the promises of Jesus in this life. In this world, you will have tribulation. Jesus promises, take that as a comfort to you, that you will experience trouble in your life. But Christian comfort is unique because it fully acknowledges the troubles that we go through. The Christian comfort that we have says there is such a thing as terminal illness. There is such a thing as infertility and miscarriages. There is such a thing as broken friendships and marriages. Financial uncertainty, mental illness, unfulfilled desires, involuntary singleness or unemployment. Romans 8, all of creation is groaning. The Bible never denies the pain that we feel other worldviews might try to minimize our pain. They might, it might, they might try to divert our focus. There are some worldviews that deny that there is such a thing as suffering. They say that suffering is an illusion. Maybe we're not in that, but we're in this culture that gives us tools to cope. There's entertainment. There are distractions. There are substances to use and abuse. There's philosophies and knowledge that promise Enlightenment, there are, there's a whole industry dedicated to self-improvement because maybe if you work on yourself, then you'll find peace. 
But Jesus, he gives us something different in this passage. Jesus doesn't just coddle us and say that somehow things will get better eventually. Jesus doesn't just give us comfort. He gives us a certain hope. And this comfort is in verse 2. The Father has a home with many rooms. That's what verse 2 says. When I was growing up, uh, one of the really popular songs, this was back in the 90s, um, there there was a a rock band called Audio Adrenaline. And uh, they were popular back then. And they had this really well-known song called Big House. This is what they played on Christian radio. I went to a few of their concerts, and this was always a song that everyone sang along to. And this is how it goes. Um, Come and go with me to my father's house. A big, big house with lots and lots of rooms. A big, big table with lots and lots of food. A big, big yard where we can play football. It's my father's house. Some of you might remember that. So two observations from this song. Number one, the, the music on Christian radio back in the 90s is much better than it is today on K-Love. <laughs> like the 12 songs they play on K-Love, um, in my opinion. And number two, this song, as catchy as it is, is not theologically correct. Um, the King James Version, it translates this verse as, in my Father's house there are many mansions. And I think this is how we get this idea that Jesus is referring to a physical space, this big house for us to live in. But did you know that if your child is suffering or if you're being tortured for your faith, maybe the promise of a big mansion isn't really going to be that much of a comfort. I don't think it will be. When you're really experiencing suffering, this is not the comfort that Jesus provides, that you will have a big mansion one day. Now, to be sure, we will one day inhabit a physical space in the new heavens and new earth. It's going to be glorious, better than we could ever imagine. But what Jesus is talking about here is being in the presence of God. It's the dwelling place of God that Jesus is telling us about. So you you might remember from our time in John chapter 1, the prologue, Jesus, he makes his dwelling place with man. God was pleased with man to dwell. And here, Jesus is saying that there is going to be a dwelling place for us as well. And our dwelling place one day is going to be in the presence of God. And this is what we were meant for. We were all meant for this, to enjoy the presence of our Creator. And this is our real home, not a big house. Our real home is the presence of Jesus. The Germans, they have a word for the feeling of deep yearning for something, uh, something that you can't quite explain, and it's this. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but it's sensucht. uh, sensucht. I'm not sure how much of the guttural there is in that, but um, sensucht, and and this is a German word, and it, it's, it, it, it tries to encapsulate this feeling that we have. Have you ever felt a restlessness for something, but you can't put your finger on it? You just feel like there's got to be something. So I don't know what it is, though. C.S. Lewis refers to this as the inconsolable longing that we have for our true home. He calls it a far country that we've never visited because we were created for something far deeper and more, and more beautiful and more real than what we experience here in this world, we have this longing. This is how Lewis puts it. He says, we'll never be satisfied. Our yearning will never be satisfied until we're in this far country. 
Creatures are, are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Jesus says there is another world that we were made for, and it's to live with our Father. This is what we were made for. And I want you to know, I hope you know this, that whatever pain you're going through, no matter how bad it is, this will not last. And I don't say this to minimize what you're going through. This is something that we can never do. We should never minimize someone's hurts or their experience with pain. But if you follow Christ, you should also know that this is temporary. One day you're going to look back on the worst of your sufferings and you're going to see it for what it really was in the grand scheme of things. This is a small and passing thing. And there is light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. And even the sun that's shining is a shadow of the truth. This is a small and passing thing, the suffering that we experience in this world. Listen to the promise of Scripture from 2 Corinthians 4. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. There is another world that we're created for. And if you know that your ultimate destination, your ultimate dwelling place is with God, you can know that this pain and suffering is temporary. This is the comfort that Jesus provides. In verses 3 and 4, Jesus tells his followers that he's going to take them there, that Jesus will lead the way, and only Jesus can take us there. Our second point, a unique Savior. So we move on to verse 5. Thomas, this is the doubting Thomas, the very inquisitive, logical, rational Thomas. He asks a rational and logical question of Jesus. He asks Jesus, what in the world are you talking about? I have no idea. And Jesus says, I'm going to go to the Father. I'm going to lead you to him. I'm going to bring you to him. And then look at verse 8. Jump ahead. Philip says that they just need to see the Father. If he sees the Father, this is going to be enough for him. And I think here Philip is expressing a desire that we all have. He's expressing a desire for something that's, that's enough to carry us through everything that he is going through. Philip is rightfully acknowledging that to see God, that to know God, this will help him make sense of the suffering that is coming or what he, he might be suffering already. Philip is expressing what we're expressing often, that this would be enough if I saw God. In 2008, there was a book published by uh, Julian Barnes entitled Nothing to be Frightened of. This was a bestseller. And this is this author's exploration of, of how we as human beings, we deal with mortality. 
And Barnes, he, he is an atheist, and um, these are the very first words of the book that are very striking if you recognize that he is an atheist. The very first words of this book that is a bestseller. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. This author is echoing the sentiment of Philip that there needs to be something that explains things like joy and sorrow and life and death. Several years after this book was published, an interviewer asked Barnes about this. Uh, he wrote a, this, uh, Julian Barnes, he's written a lot of books, and most of them have this theme of religion and spirituality and life and death. And um, this is his response when an interviewer asked him, why, why, why these recurring themes in your works? And this is what he said. We are a narrative animal, aren't we? We live by stories, sometimes true, sometimes false. We want the news to be turned into stories. We want a narrative even when there is no narrative. We want our human life on this planet to be turned into a narrative. Doctors, thanatologists, those dealing with the dying, think that it's a point where you can look back on your life and see the story of it, understand the narrative of your life. I'm much more skeptical of that. I think there are lots of influences, there are lots of instances where there is no narrative, or the narrative is one we wouldn't want to accept because it's too painful to bear. Julian Barnes, the atheist, he doesn't believe that there's anything that gives shape to the story of our lives, but he's still expressing to us We want something to give shape to our lives. We want a narrative. And even if we don't believe in God, we at least want something to explain history, the history of the universe, but more so the shape of our own personal lives. In other words, we all want religion. Did you know that we get the word religion from the Latin word religar? And that Latin word, it means to bind. This Latin word, religar, means to bind. At its root, religion is not about the belief in supernatural deities. At its root, religion is not about the belief in something spiritual. Religion is really about how we bind everything in the world together. Because we need a way to organize and categorize ourselves and our stories and our experiences. We need something to tie all that we experience together. We need a narrative. And religion is what writes the script for our day. How will we spend our money? What things will upset us and what things will make us happy? What will we allow to interrupt our schedule? Who will we love and who will we neglect? How will we vote? You might call yourself an atheist or an agnostic, but you cannot say that you're not religious. We're all religious. It's just a matter of whether we have good religion or bad religion. Take, for instance, these groups of people. The mother who spends all her time worrying about her child or the father who can't bear the thought of his children not attending a certain college guess what this family's religion is? The man who constantly checks the market and his portfolio. Guess what religion that is? 
the person who must eat healthy and go to the gym every day, guess what that religion is? The man or woman whose date is ruined when they're not recognized by a group of people or when this person is not accepted by a certain person or when they're rejected by another, there's a religion behind that sentiment. These are the things that bind the realities of people. And when things don't go their way, when they don't go the way they want or expect, they begin to fall apart because they've put their hope and confidence in things that were never meant to hold their lives together. So these two disciples, Thomas and Philip, they're asking Jesus, give us something to make sense of everything. These are good Jewish boys. And it was their understanding of God that if I really got God, if I understood God, if God could come in and explain to me, then this would make sense. Then this could explain the suffering and the uncertainty of my life. But they still don't get it. You'll see in verse 9, Jesus' response. You've been with me for so long and you still don't get it, do you? This is what Jesus says in verse 9. But Jesus, he says this maybe with a little bit of snark, but I think with more compassion than, than anything. He doesn't leave them in their ignorance. He's going to give them what they most need. And this is where 14.6, this famous verse comes in. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Now this is perhaps the most famous I am, of Je- I am statement of Jesus. There are seven. And I think this is perhaps the most rich of his statements. And I want to spend just a week on each one of these claims, but we don't have time. So um, I'm just going to share the essence of, these th- of these, uh, this threefold aspect of this claim of Jesus. Uh, I want to share the essence of it as much as we need to understand how this claim fits into today's passage. And perhaps one day we'll be able to look at this more in depth. But um, what does it mean that Jesus is a way, the truth, and the life? So first, Jesus, he says, he's the way. When Jesus says that he is the way, he's saying, I am the way to access God. You might remember the history of the Jews if you were paying attention in uh, old sermons or Sunday school classes. So in the Old Testament, the people of God, they're surrounded by other nations, these other pagan nations. And every other nation surrounding them had multiple gods, dozens or even hundreds of gods. And one of the distinctives of Israel, one of the distinctives of God's people was they were monotheistic. They were the only people that believed in one God alone. And then we move forward to the New Testament, the first century Jews. They lived in a Greco-Roman culture that had hundreds of gods. And the way to appease these gods was to figure out what they wanted and how they should make the proper sacrifices so you could gain their favor. So um, the problem with these many multiple gods is you never, you could never know if you were making the right sacrifice or if it was enough. For example, um, if you were a farmer and you wanted it to rain, what you would do is you would pray to the rain god, and then you would make a sacrifice, an offering to the rain god. And if it stayed dry, that meant that you didn't pray hard enough or you didn't give enough offering. So you went back to the temple and you prayed to the rain god. If he still didn't answer, you'd go, I must be doing something wrong. I have to sacrifice more. I have to do more. And you can imagine how exhausting this is. 
This is the culture that the listeners lived in. They lived among capricious gods that you were never quite sure about. The way to win the favor of your particular god was unknown. Which is, by the way, why the Ten Commandments was such a gift to the Israelites that we just uh, went through in the, in the uh, reading of the uh, Shorter Catechism. God has made himself known through the Ten Commandments. But the Greco-Roman culture had these gods that were capricious. You could never know if you were right with them. So when Jesus, he says he's the way, he's saying that there is a certain and specific way in which we have access to God, and we don't have to guess. Jesus has made it clear, the holy God cannot be in the presence of sin, and only a perfect once-for-all sacrifice would be enough. If we believe in Jesus as our perfect sacrifice to make the way to God, then we will know God. This is how we can know God, because Jesus has made it clear. And Jesus is the only way because he's both God 100% God and 100% man. It's by his sacrifice that the mercy and love of God can be reconciled with God's justice and his holiness. Because Jesus, the God-man, has made himself known. He's made God known. He's made himself the way for us to have access to the Father. But we not only have access to God, we're also loved by God. You're so loved by your father. Other people could not say that their deity was a father, but Jesus refers to God specifically as the father. So Jesus is the way. Jesus is also the truth. Jesus says he's the explanation of God. In the, in the prologue of John, we're told that Jesus, he, he exegetes. This is a, a, a seminary word. When I do exegesis, I'm trying to pull out the meaning of the text. I'm trying to interpret it and explain it. Jesus is exegeting God. Jesus is explaining God to us. So how do we know what God is like? By looking at what Jesus is like. As the Son, Jesus does and says what the Father tells him to say and do. And he not only tells the truth about God, but he is the truth of who God is. Jesus is the invisible God made visible. Jesus is the truth. And this is a challenge to the popular understanding of God in our culture. Some might say that God is out there, God is lofty, and he is unknowable. But Jesus says that God condescended and has made himself known. Some might say that God is malleable, that he will bend himself to the preferences of people. But Jesus says God is righteous and holy, and he has a perfect standard that you must abide by. Some might say that God is waiting for you to make a mistake so he can pounce on you and condemn you and send you to hell. And Jesus says God is full of compassion and mercy and he's ready to forgive, and he loves you. This is how Jesus is the truth. He has told the truth about God. In his person and through his works, he, Jesus destroys our conceptions about God. And Jesus shows God to be far more beautiful than we could ever imagine. And he shows God to be far more terrifying than we could ever imagine. Jesus is the way, Jesus is the truth, and finally, Jesus is the life. 
Jesus is the means to our participation in the life of God. John 1 says that in Jesus was life. Colossians 1, he is the creator and sustainer of life. And all things are held together by Jesus. The hands of Jesus are binding the molecules of the universe together. John 6, the disciples ask Jesus, when he asks them if they're going to leave him, they say to Jesus, who else will we go to? You have the words of life. Jesus is the life. So John 14, 6, this is intended to be a comfort to us because Jesus is the only way who will give us access to God. He's the only one who can make sense of all things. Every other God will disappoint. No other God gives us a cohesive understanding of reality. Now, for us as Bay Areans... I know that we all interact with, most of us probably interact with a lot of different cultures, a lot of different worldviews, people that believe different things than us. And when people hear us say something like, Jesus is the only way to God, they might say, it's arrogant for you to say such a thing. Rather, you should be humble. You should make room for other worldviews. You should accept other religions. And this religious pluralism of our day is ultimately about accommodation. Because we don't want to offend anyone. We don't want to tell anyone that they're wrong. We want to be accommodating. We want to accept other religions and worldviews. But let me propose to you that the way of Jesus is the most accommodating of all religions and worldviews. The way of Jesus is the most inclusive of all ways. Consider this. Every religion says that you have to do something to earn favor with God. Every religion says you have to maintain a certain lifestyle to be accepted. You have to be good. You have to be respectable. You have to make up for your mistakes if you dare make a mistake. And yet, what does the Christian story say? The Christian story affirms the dignity of all people. Not because they do good things, but because they bear the image of God. But the gospel says that we've all sinned, we've all distorted this imago day in us. We've all rebelled against God by trusting ourselves more than him. We've put our confidence in things other than him. We've tried to make sense of life apart from God. We've tried to make our own way. We've tried to live by our own truths. We've tried to create an identity and a life apart from the only source of life. And this is every single one of us. The gospel continues, Romans 3, you might remember this. For there is, listen to this, there is no distinction. There is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we might think the story ends there, but there's only a comma there. The sentence continues. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. How does God deal with sinners? He says, all are justified by his grace as a gift. The gospel says that all are welcome. And the only qualification to come to the Father is to acknowledge your inability to make things right with him. It's the only qualification. And if we understand that, we will repent. We will turn away from 
our own attempts to find life. So I submit to you that the Christian faith is the most inclusive of all religions because it says that all are welcome. Everyone's welcome except for people who think they're good people. All are welcome because the life and death of the man Jesus Christ was sufficient to pay the penalty for all who would ever approach the Father. Only Jesus could have done such a thing. Only Jesus could have done such a thing. Not you. And in a very real way, this requires absolute humility. Because when you say that Jesus is the only way to God, you're saying and acknowledging your own neediness and your own inability to do what you need to do. I've been in the pastorate for a few years now, and um, one of the things that surprises me uh, constantly is uh, that there are so many people that feel like they're unworthy to come to church, or they're they're unworthy to approach God. Uh, When I started, I thought the bigger problem would be that uh, there are most people comfortable in their spiritual apathy. They're lazy, uh, their inclination is towards sin, and they're completely okay with that. But what I've come to see is that there are so many of us that approach the, the, the church community or God with fear and trepidation. We're so ashamed of what we've done, and we let that cripple us. And if that's you, I have a word for you. That God has a special heart for those who feel most deeply their inadequacy. Those who are most broken and contrite, God has a special heart for you. When Jesus says he's the way, he makes it an invitation. Come to me. Jesus will not reject you. And if this is you, for you, Jesus must become more than the way, the truth, and the life in the abstract. Jesus must become your way, your truth, and your life. Jesus must become your life. Remember this verse from Colossians 1. Christ in you is the only hope of glory. So what Jesus speaks to the disciples, let him speak it to you. Let not your heart be troubled. Do not be afraid. Believe in God. Believe in Jesus. Our final point is a unique power. And I'm just going to end it really quickly here for the sake of time. Jesus says, you will do greater things than me. What this means is God has given us a mission to make disciples. We're going to make more disciples than Jesus could have made during his time on earth. He has empowered the church with, his, with the power of the Holy Spirit to do his work. We will do greater things, and IGC is a part of what Jesus started in the world. Our vision is to make disciples who make disciples. And then Jesus says this, Whatever you ask in my name, I'll do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. How do we know that Jesus will do what we ask? Because he knows the Father, and he's acting on our behalf. Jesus gives us a unique power, and we'll talk about it more as we talk about the Holy Spirit. But I'm just going to stop now, because I'm done. Uh, there's, I can talk to you more, but for the sake of time, um, I think Michael or I will talk more about this down the road. But... Um,
Jesus is our way, our truth, and our life. And may we worship him because of this. Will you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for showing us the way, the truth, and the life through the man Jesus Christ. And as we approach the table, I pray that you give us humility to accept what only you can give, God. And may we honor you with our lives. May you be worshipped. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.